The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The last time I went to the eye doctor to get new lenses for my glasses, I took one of our daughters with me. Frankly, I think the whole experience was kind of boring for her. But she did seem to rather enjoy watching me be examined by that great big machine they use to determine your prescription. You know, the one that's on the arm and swings over in front of you and has all those combinations of lenses in it. The doctor clicks through the different lenses and trying to find the right prescription. You kind of click, click, can you read the, the top line, you know, the middle line, the bottom line? Okay, other eye, click, 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 click. How about now? Middle line? Bottom line? Yeah, this kind of goes on until he or she starts getting close, and then it turns into this. Which is better? One, click, click, or two? Two, click, click, or one? They all, you know, it always looks kind of blurry, equally blurry to me. If you've, if you've been there, you know. So, I, I don't know. Okay, try again. One, click, click, or two? Two, click, click, or one? Two, I guess. I don't know. Okay, well, try this then. Two, click, click, or three? Ooh, three. It's not blurry anymore. I can see. That's the prescription that I need. Those are the right lenses for me. Jots down some notes, and I'm off. This morning, the Apostle Paul is going to be our independent doctor of optometry. In our text today, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, he's going to hold up in front of us some lenses, and he's aiming to help us properly see our world and our God. These nine verses do not contain a single command to you. God, through the pen of Paul, is not going to explicitly tell you to do anything. He's just, click, click, trying to help you see He's going to hold some things up in front of you. He's going to declare, or to paint, if you will, a picture of Christ so we can see it, see Him. And as we contemplate this picture then, I think some natural, some appropriate response will become apparent to us. This morning we again have this opportunity to fix right before our eyes the person and the work of Jesus. So we can look at the world through Jesus-tinted lenses. This is important every day. We talked about it a lot when we were just recently working through the book of Ephesians. It's always important. But today especially, today on Easter morning as we celebrate Christ and His resurrection from the grave, it is vitally important that we accurately see and contemplate Jesus and who He is. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, first part of the passage, presents to us two arenas or two realms in which Christ operates and over which he reigns. 15 to 20. And then 21 to 23, what follows that, is going to turn and speak to us directly and call for a response. Now, these are, this is a familiar passage. And if these verses, or at least these concepts, are 
things you've heard before? Good. I hope that you have. It's a good thing. But I invite you then to engage with them afresh. See if God won't won't grip you with them anew here and change you a little bit. Because the, the process of growth is not just the process of continually acquiring the new. It is also the process of coming to be more firmly gripped by the familiar. So that's my hope this morning, my prayer really, that this morning we look at this passage and God would use it to more firmly grip you. Maybe it'll be new for you, maybe it won't be, but he'll use it to grip you and that you'll see and believe more deeply from this passage that because Christ is supreme over all, because Christ reigns supreme over everything, we must respond to him with persistent faith. That's the main point this morning. Because Christ reigns supreme over all, we must respond to him with persistent, steadfast faith. I'm going to read the passage. You can follow along with me, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The first realm in which we see the supremacy of Christ is the realm of creation. Verses 15 to 17 make clear that Christ reigns supreme over the creation. Christ reigns supreme over all of the creation. All things, everywhere conceivable. Let's watch this. Watch where this comes from. Verse 15. He, that is Jesus, He is the image of of the invisible God. God is spirit and has no body as we do. That's what the catechism says. It's true. But remarkably, God who is invisible, God who is spirit, determined to come to earth and take on a body to present himself visible to his creation. We could see him. We could touch him. We could kill him. 
This is Jesus, the image of God, the perfect image of God. Now, to some extent, all of us, all men and women, all boys and girls, bear the image of God. By virtue of the fact that he made us. We can read about that in the beginning of Genesis. He made us also in some way we're like him. We resemble his nature, his character. For instance, God loves, and so do we. We love too, imperfectly, not all the time, not in the right way, but we do love. Trees don't love at all. So we resemble him. We're, we're like him a little bit. We bear his image, but not like Jesus does. Jesus is the unique image of God the exact representation of his being. He shows us God perfectly, exactly, untarnished by sin, unblemished, untwisted, unaffected by the fall. The Bible tells us that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father because he and the Father are one. They are together, one God, forever and ever into eternity past, now and forever into eternity future. There is one God existing in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's only one. Not two, not three, not many. You've seen Him. You've seen the Father. As Hebrews chapter 1 says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. He is the visible image of the invisible God. This is a strong opening statement about the divinity of Christ. He is God. And this is further magnified by what comes next. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So now here with this phrase, we see that he is separated from and distinct from the creation. He is the firstborn over it. Now, the idea of firstborn is an important one. It's going to appear later in this passage again in a slightly different context. Some groups, like the Jehovah Witnesses, for instance, try to make this passage teach that Jesus is the first of the creation. He's in the creation fully. Now, he's an important creation. He's an important creature, you know, kind of exalted within the realm of the creation, but he is a creature nonetheless. So they try to make this passage teach. Is that true? Well, to put it simply, no, it's not. The word itself can, of course, literally mean first one born firstborn. You've got a family, you've got kids, the oldest would be the firstborn. It's, it's used like that in Greek literature, no denying it. It can mean the first in a sequence. Like if you've got a group and you've got somebody who's at the beginning of it, he might be called the firstborn. It can mean that. But it can also mean, in other contexts, frequently, where the idea of order or being born is not at all in view, it also can mean uniqueness and supremacy reigning over something, being exalted above it all. As in Psalm 89. You can see there where God describes the Messianic king as the firstborn of all the kings on the earth, exalted above them. He doesn't mean that he became king first, or that he was chronologically oldest. He's not talking about order at all. He's talking about supremacy. He's the firstborn king. So it can mean either. It can mean both the first one born or the unique supreme one. Which does it mean here? How can we tell? Well, context. 
Dictionaries can only tell you what a word might mean. That's why there are multiple definitions in dictionaries. The context in which the word is used determines what it does mean. And here in these verses, the next two verses, the context is decisive. As we keep moving along, we're going to see clearly that we are talking about supremacy, reigning over something. Christ is the firstborn of the creation. That is, he is the supreme one, the unique one over all of the creation because, verse 16, for, there's a reason coming up here, there's an argument here. He is the firstborn one because of something. Why? Because he made it all. That's what the next two verses say. Christ is the firstborn because he made everything. All things. For by him all things were created. All things. Not most things. Not many things. Not all other things. He's not the first creation. He's not a creation at all. He made all things. Catch the sweeping, all-encompassing summary statements here. Things in heaven and on earth. Things visible and invisible, all things, whether thrones or rulers or powers or principalities, all things, the spiritual forces too, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's repeated so many times there. All the creation, all things, all things, all things, all things. Paul, what are you trying to say? What he's trying to say is that Jesus is the creator of all things, everywhere. Let your mind run anywhere you please. Go into heaven, go onto earth, go into the visible realm or into the invisible realm, into the physical realm or the spiritual realm. Wherever you go, whatever you find, Jesus made it. It is a wide statement. He's the firstborn of the creation because he is the creator. The triune God determined we are going to create. And Jesus, God the Son, is the agent through whom and in whom and for whom the creation was made. I'm going to come back to that phrase for whom in just a minute. But I don't want to leave the main point here. You must see that there is some astounding authority here. The lens that Paul is placing in front of our eyes right now here in these couple of verses is that Jesus reigns supreme over all of the creation because he made it. And that gives him some rights. So he's trying to communicate to us here. We understand this in the human realm. Think about parents and kids. There is something about the creating and the birthing process of children that gives biological parents some unique rights very unique rights different even than adoptive parents we see sometimes custody battles fought, fought on those grounds different than neighbors different than even other blood relatives like grandparents the birth parent has some unique rights here in the, our earthly realm we understand that the same goes for Jesus he made it so it's his all of this it's all Christ's world. All of us. We are all Christ's creatures. He, therefore, He is the one who stands before us 
with whom we must ultimately deal. He's our creator. He reigns over us. Paul further underlines this truth by how, he, by how he talks about all things created through him and for him. Did you catch that last phrase, the, the for him? Who is the creation made for? This creation that Jesus made exists for him, not for us. Right there at the end of verse 16. This is his world, fashioned by him and for him. And if we ask why, I think the Bible is pretty clear. We talked about that pretty frequently in the book of Ephesians. He made all things for himself. That is, it all exists for Christ's glory. In this creation, God is meeting his goal of displaying and then being worshipped for his wondrous self and his multifaceted beauty made known to his creation in the face of Christ. This creation does not exist primarily to make a nice life for you and me. I don't want to dump that on you in a hard way. I'm not at all trying to, to rub our collective noses in that or something. I'm just trying to point out what's true. The creation is not about us. We are not at the center of the universe. This is a radically God-oriented world. And God has determined that God the Son, Jesus, would be the crowned and glorified and reigning visible image of God within this creation from now on into eternal age after age. Always. God has determined to place God the Son front and center in the world forever. And therefore, that's the end towards which Christ sustains all things or holds them all together. Verse 17. He sustains all things by his powerful word for his own exaltation. For his own exaltation. And note carefully, this control is, is so strong. It's so vast that it does not say, the text does not say that he sustains all good things while somehow all bad things are self-sustaining. This is a sweeping statement of sovereignty. He sustains all things, good and bad. This current world, fallen and broken as it is, and it is clearly fallen and broken. But nonetheless, this world is the world that Christ in his wisdom has determined to hold together right now and sustain. Somehow for his honor. He holds together the good and the bad things for himself. And, interestingly, he holds together the good and the bad things for us. Talk about that in just a second. But we have to acknowledge this could be a hard truth. This could be a hard thing to get our minds around, especially when we're encountering some of the bad, even evil in the world. You look at things and say, Jesus is sustaining this? Jesus is holding this together right now? Yes, he is. 
It can also be a hard teaching because it, it might in some way seem like it's an egotistical God who's really all about making much of himself. Isn't that kind of self-focused? How can that be right? These things might be some hard teachings, but there is a lot of truth in them. They are entirely true, in fact. And that is a good thing for you. These truths are true for Christ's greater glory and they are true for your greater joy. Both. They're one and the same. Let me try to explain a little bit about that. Christ is out for His own glory. And He is most glorified when we fallen people turn to Him and trust Him and wholeheartedly worship Him above all other things that we encounter here on the earth. That's what most glorifies Him when He becomes in each of our lives one by one such a strong magnet that we are drawn to Him and drawn away from everything else here. That's what most glorifies Him. And, and such wholehearted worship and focus on and attention towards Christ is exactly what most satisfies the human soul. It's what we were made for. It's what resonates in us. It's what is fulfilling. It's what brings joy to the human heart. You see, they're the same thing. They're one and the same. He sustains the world for His own glory. And as we look at Him and regard Him as bigger and better than anything else that we see, He is honored and our hearts are fixed on the God that we were made for. They're one and the same. They're hand and glove. They fit together. I'm just scratching the surface here. I'm like talking about the tip of the iceberg. And I don't have time to go into everything that's underneath of the surface. But there is some massive theology there that is life-changing. When I began to understand some of that, it revolutionized how I looked at God. How I understood the Bible. It can change your life if you begin to realize God is at the center of the world. Christ has been established there on the pedestal at the center of the world for His own honor. And that's what I most need. They are one and the same. I have to leave that though because our subject at hand here is the sovereign reigning of Christ over all of the creation. Holding together all things, I invite you to trust the sovereignty of God. It is the, marvel, the most marvelous of doctrines. When life is spinning out of control, when, when things are painful and hard, it tells you who's at the center of things. It provides an anchor for your soul. It gives you something to trust in, someone to lean on. Embrace the sovereign, supreme reigning of Christ over all of the creation. Jesus is the firstborn of creation reigning supreme over it. He is its origin and its purpose. He is its sustainer and its ruler. He is not the first creation. He is the creator. That's the lens right here. Christ reigns supreme over all of the creation. That requires a response from us. It's a natural response that should come. And we'll get to that shortly. Stay tuned.
For the moment, though, I want to stay with this picture that Paul's painting and move on to the second realm that he describes. In verse 18, we turn a corner from the realm of the creation to the realm of the recreation, if you will. Second stage, Christ reigns and will forever reign supreme over the recreation. Christ reigns supreme over the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new body. I'll try to show that, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, or he might be supreme. Jesus is the Lord of creation. We saw that, but there's a huge piece of background information that's assumed here. What it's not talked about, but well known to the readers of this letter, is that the creation that was made by God has been broken, and there is a massive problem. A great rift has developed between the Creator and the creation. And Jesus is the agent sent now to heal that rift, to rejoin them, to make all things new. And this recreation work begins with fallen people. He's the master of His people, His body, His church. That's what head means there. We saw this in the book of Ephesians. He has gathered together and is gathering together those who trust him and making them into one new man over which he is the head. The Bible says that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, those who trust him also go through a death and a resurrection. That old self that lived in rejection of him dies and we are raised again to new life, made new creatures who are joined to him, who are in his family, who are his brothers and sisters and heirs. We're given new hearts. Jesus lives in us, making us new. And what comes after that, what comes beyond our physical death, is a new life forever and ever in the new heaven and the new earth. This has happened because Christ began the resurrection. Christ came out of the grave alive. So we see here, we celebrate this on Easter. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. Now here, unlike in the, in the previous use, here firstborn likely does mean something about order. Because we see in this context here, Jesus did something first that all of us will go through. He came out of the grave first, but so will we all. Everybody will be resurrected, face a judgment. Some will pass to life and some will pass on to eternal death. But he began that resurrection on that first Easter Sunday long ago. And it's a resurrection that had a purpose. You notice the verse says, so that or that he might be preeminent in everything. It establishes him not just as supreme over the creation, but it establishes him as head over the new creation as well. Jesus walked the earth and he made some astounding claims. Claims that eventually got him killed, in fact. Claimed to be eternal. He claimed authority over the patriarchs and the Old Testament prophets. He claimed to be the divinely approved Messiah. He claimed to be God. But a huge problem happened on Good Friday night. He was killed. He was crucified like a common criminal. 
No divinely blessed Messiah can be hung on a tree because the Old Testament says he who was hung on a tree is accursed by God, not approved by him. And that happened and everybody saw it. What's the deal? Well, three days later, as Roman chapter, Romans chapter 1 puts it, Christ was brought forth from the grave and declared in power to be the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. God would never approve a liar of that magnitude. God would never begin the resurrection from the dead with someone like that. He would never put his stamp of approval on a blasphemer of that caliber who claimed to be God himself. He would never begin the new age that comes with the outpouring of the Spirit in someone like that unless, unless he's trying to make a statement. This one, this Jesus, whom you crucified, is no blasphemer. He is who he said he was. He is God come in the flesh, the author of life. He cannot be held by death. I've raised him up to show that. I have established him on a pedestal in the middle of all of the recreation history as well. He is the one with whom you must deal. He is the one in whom all of my fullness dwells, says God. God is full of power. He knows all. He does all His holy will. He is perfect righteousness, complete justice, vast love. He is the end. He is the goal of all that ever was, all that is, and all that will be. And all of that fullness of God is wrapped up into a ball and dwells bodily in Jesus. It is amazing. Chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. He is the exact representation of His being. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Let it be clearly acknowledged. Let it be marveled at and reveled in. But let it not be ignored. Jesus is supreme over the creation. He is supreme over the recreation. He is God. He's God before whom we stand and with whom we must deal. And He will have peace. He will have peace in His whole creation, one way or the other. Right now, in this time, even today, this morning, He offers peace. He offers peace to those who lay down their arms and come to Him humbly, asking Him for forgiveness. It's a marvelous offer here. But one day he will impose peace on those who remain his enemies and the spiritual powers behind them. Another passage in Colossians 2 uses a passage that we saw similar to what we saw in Ephesians where it talks about how he has taken all of the spiritual forces that are arrayed against him and using the language of a Roman military parade, he's chained them up behind his chariot and he drags them back and forth through his city before he leads them out to their final execution. That's what he has done and that is what he will do with those who remain his enemies. He will make peace and that is a dreadful day to think about. Come now and take the offer of peace while you still can. 
See the mercy of God now contrasted against the judgment of God later. Come now, I plead with you. The entire creation will one day, one way or another, do the perfect bidding of its creator. He's God. He's going to have it that way. He is going to bring all things to heal under his authority. This requires a response from us. We have to see this and react to it in some way. How? What should we do? If Christ reigns supreme over his creation, making it all, sustaining it all for his honor, and therefore having the right to judge it and rule it, how should we respond? And if Christ reigns supreme over all of the recreation, offering peace now or imposing peace later, but getting peace somehow or another, how should we respond? How does Paul respond? Verse 21. Again, he turns a corner. Verses 15 to 20 were all about Jesus, painting that picture of who he is and how he reigns supreme. And in 21, the tables turn, and now he talks directly to you. He's going to call for a response from you. Specifically here, you can tell by looking at the tenses of the verbs, he's, he's talking to the church, to those who claim to already have come to Christ, to have already come to Christ. But I think we can understand this as containing a message also already for, for those who have not yet come to him. There's also a message in here for you too. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, you haven't given your heart to him yet, there's something here for you too. So whether you're a Christian or not, please listen to the Word of God tell you about you. Either what you were or what you still are if you haven't come to Him. Verse 21. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... This is, the, this is the, the quite negative reality of what life used to be for us, maybe what it still is for you. This is negative and it is tragic. The creation exists for Christ's honor, but all of us turned away from that and said no and walked another way. Walked any number of other different ways, but a different way. All of us said, we will not honor you above all things. We will not heed your authority. We will not embrace you and love you above everything else. We're going to go our own way. Sometimes, think of how that looks. Sometimes in our lives, it's very defiant. Sometimes it's a planting of your feet and squaring of your shoulders and a raising of your fist and through clenched teeth you spit out, I will not submit to you. Sometimes it's that bold and at other times it's, it's a lot more passive than that at other times on the other end of the scale it looks kind of like somebody laying on the couch and just saying oh you know there's I, yeah there's a God I'm sure there's a God and I probably need to think about that and deal with it but to be honest right now there's just a whole lot of other stuff that's kind of front and center in my life if you know what I mean I, maybe I, I get around to that Maybe when I get a little older, maybe once we have kids, we'll go back to church, or maybe once the kids are grown, 
or maybe when I retire, perhaps on my deathbed. Think of that. The gall of it. Either, either angry defiance or just some passive indifference to it. Christ reigns supreme over everything. In one way or another, we say, I got other stuff to do. And it's tragic. All of it is a turning away from God and a turning towards life dominated, lived for self, pride that sets ourselves up as God, complaining attitudes that don't know contentment, biting words that tear other people down, lust that drives us after more and more forbidden fruit, evil deeds. Abuse of alcohol, the love of money, sexual promiscuity, personal vanity, intellectual pride, pornographic pursuits, gluttony, racial discrimination, spousal abuse, evil deeds. We abdicate our responsibility to protect the widow and the orphan. We don't care for the poor. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Evil deeds, all of them, showing what's inside of us. Evil deeds performed with our hands, with our lips, with our minds, or even with our hearts, displaying what we're like on the inside. This attitude of proud resistance and rebellion against Jesus put us, or perhaps puts you, in great danger because this rejection of God carried to its end has a drastic penalty to it the scriptures say that the wages of sin is death I'm not talking about physical death I'm talking about spiritual death beyond the grave to be resurrected and judged forever to hell if you think about that and that comes home to you that should terrify you because it is terrifying. It's not a concept or an idea. It's the worst reality we can imagine. And it is coming to those who continually hold him off. Alienation from God. The state of eternal separation from him. The obvious and most important response for you this morning, if you are still in that place, is to repent. To turn away from walking that path that rejects him and to turn back to him. To come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. Have me back, please. Forgive me. I come to you empty-handed with nothing to merit this. Don't come to him and cut a deal. You've got nothing to offer. Come to him humble, pleading for mercy. Sorry for your sin and rejection of him. And you come to him like that, and he will forgive. He's full of mercy, full of love. And people who come like that will find his mercy, will find his love, and will find Christ's death on the cross sufficient to wipe away their sin and to cover over the wrath of God for you. Come to him. A way has been opened that all repentant people can be forgiven. Sin can be removed from you. You can be delivered from that. And you can be delivered to something as well. 
the text says. He has reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. It's not just the removal of the punishment, but it's the placing in this state of blessedness. Purity. You yourself and all of your realm one day will be without sin and without the sufferings of sin. You'll stand before Him holy and blameless, above reproach, face to face with God, accepted by Him, enjoying His fellowship. No animosity, no separation, no discord. That is a glorious thing that can be yours. And saints, it is yours already. You're headed there. That is a marvelous thing. Now it's obvious, I think it's obvious why Paul would want that message preached to or delivered to those who have not yet come to Christ. Because he wants them to see the danger they are in. He wants you to see the danger that you are in and the blessedness of what you could be in. I think that's obvious. That response makes sense. But another question arises. We, we already said that if you look at the tenses in, in the passage, he's primarily talking to people in the church, people who have already embraced that message. So why preach that again to us? That's what most of us here are, are here this morning. Why? Well, I, I, think the, I think the reason is that he wants to stir up in us persistent faith and steadfast hope. It's the response he's looking for in you. The appropriate response to a God who has acted to deliver you despite your unworthiness. That's who we all were, unworthy. The appropriate response to that kind of God is worship and thanks and affection. Permanent worship and faith and thanks and affection. Permanent hope, steadfast and abiding, life-changing. That is the natural response when we see that kind of truth, when we have that kind of Christ displayed before our eyes. That's how we are supposed to respond if you have a new heart. It's natural. It's so natural that it is always present in some degree in everyone who has genuinely trusted Christ. I expect that there are some of us here this morning who need to consider this. Look at verse 23. You can only look forward to standing before God holy and blameless and above reproach. You can only claim the end of alienation from him if, if you continue, if you persist in your faith. Look at what it says. You have been reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The emphasis in verse 23 falls on the if it's as if it's underlined in the original. Right away, I think some of us have a problem here. Some of us might have some theological questions about how all that works, but some of us have a greater problem than that. Some of us here, I think, I don't know everybody, of course, the group this size, I'm imagining that some of us here want to claim 
that the alienation between you and God has ended, that you've been reconciled to him, that things have been made right between you and that you were joined back to him and that you are one day going to stand before him holy and blameless and above reproach. You want to claim that in the absence of a life that displays continuing faith and trust in Jesus. And I hope it is clear that this text plainly says no to that way of thinking. Please notice, the text does not say you will stand before him blameless if you call yourself a Christian. It does not say you will stand before him blameless if at some point in the past you prayed some kind of prayer and have to date not yet renounced that. It doesn't say that. The text does not say you stand before him blameless if you were born in a Christian family, have continued to call yourself a Christian and you go to church on Easter. It does not say that. What it does say and what Paul is aiming for in saying it is that you will stand before him blameless if you have persistent, steadfast faith and hope in Christ's gospel. Look at the verse. That is clear. That is the vital key. I'll say that again. You will stand before him blameless if you have persistent steadfast faith and hope in Christ's gospel. The key is persistent, steadfast faith. We are saved by faith alone, not some lineage or habit or long ago prayer. It is entirely possible to pray something without having any genuine saving faith. Tons of people do it. We're not saved by that prayer. We're saved by genuine faith. And genuine saving faith is never alone and it is never temporary. Genuine saving faith abides. It comes and it changes you. God comes and lives inside of you and has made you new. And then you are different from then on forever. The words are clear here. If you must continue... You must be stable and steadfast, persistent. We're genuinely saved by persistent and steadfast faith. And if you have that kind of faith, rest assured, you will stand before him blameless. So the call to each of us, the call then is, have this kind of faith. Hold fast to this Christ and this gospel. Don't look back 20 years and try to figure out, did I really mean that? There's nothing in the verse about looking back. All that it's saying is that right now, today, trust Him. And tomorrow, trust Him. And the day after that, trust Him. Today, love Him. Tomorrow, love Him. Day after that, love Him. Today, hope in Him alone. Tomorrow, Hope in Him alone. The next day, hope in Him alone. Remain stable and steadfast, grasping and holding on to this gospel. Don't throw it to the side. Don't let it slip out between your fingers. Embrace Christ with persistent, steadfast faith and hope and love. Christ reigns supreme over the creation. 
Christ reigns and will forever reign supreme over the recreation. The appropriate response to that is persistent, steadfast, heart-fastening, life-changing faith. Trust Him above all things. You will find Him then to be a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, and a mighty deliverer. He came out of the grave to bring you out of the grave. It will happen. He is the firstborn from among the dead. And I hope and I plead with you, embrace Him in faith. And when He brings you out of the grave, He will bring you out of the grave to life everlasting with Him. Respond to Him in that way. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.